Welcome to The Vine. A big welcome to The Vine. Uh, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're new to The Vine or relatively new, uh, we are so glad you're with us. And uh, we have people in the overflow outside as well. So hi to those who are in the second floor on the overflow. It's great to have you with us as well. Uh, what a joy it is to be together in Hong Kong. Amen? Yeah. We'll try that one one more time. <laughs> Am I the only one? <laughs> it's great to be together in Hong Kong, amen? Amen. Well, last week I told you that in uh, three weeks' time we're going to start a new series here on the book of Exodus. Uh, it's a series that we've been planning for about four years. Uh, it's a film series. Uh, I went to uh, Egypt and Jordan and we filmed the journey of Israel going out of slavery in Egypt into the freedom of the promised land. Uh, and it got delayed a hundred times because of COVID. Uh, we finally got it finished. We're finally going to uh, start to do that series on the 16th of April. And I said last week we're going to show a little bit of that series each week leading up to to the 16th. And last week, I just showed you a quick 20 seconds of me standing near the pyramids. Uh, this week, I'm going to show you about 45 seconds of uh, some other footage from the series. Uh, next week, we're going to look at um, uh, about a minute and a half from the, one of the episodes. Uh, and then on Easter Sunday itself, we'll uh, show you uh, the trailer that we have for uh, the series. But uh, here's uh, 45 seconds of me in the middle of nowhere. That's a little bit more. So <laughs> the reason why I wanted to show you that is because that place that I was looking out on, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that place together today. But before I do, um, I, I think it was in the late, yeah, probably the late month of October 1976, a Hungarian sculptor and professor of architecture at the University of Budapest uh, created a 3D model for his students so that they could understand uh, structural engineering a little bit better. And he created this 3D model and he, he showed it to them and they absolutely loved it. And they asked him if he would make a 3D model for each one of them. And so he made one for every single one of his students. Well, one of the students took this 3D model home and showed it to her dad because she knew that her dad would love it as well and be fascinated by it. And he was. Now, this father owned a toy store in Budapest. And so he, he said to the professor, hey, could you make me a small batch of these 3D models because uh, I would like to sell them in my toy store. And so the professor agreed, made a few more, and he sold them in his toy store. Now, about exactly that same time, there was a British businessman who was on business in Budapest visiting. And one of the things that he always did when he was overseas visiting somewhere on business, he would buy something to take back to his daughter. And so he walks into this very toy store and he sees this very 3D model and he thinks his daughter will love it. So he buys it, he takes it back to the UK and yes, his daughter absolutely loves this thing. She thinks it's the most amazing thing or her friends love it. And this businessman comes up with a business idea, as businessmen often do. And he thinks to himself, well, if my daughter and all her friends love this thing, there could be hundreds and thousands of children all across the UK that would want to hold one of these things. So he manages to track down the original guy that created it in the University of Budapest. And he said to him, look, I want to go into business with you. I want to sell this 3D model around the world. But the first thing you need to do is patent it. 
And so the professor decides to patent his invention, and that decision ends up making him eventually one of the wealthiest people in Hungary. And when you patent something, you have to come up with a name for it. So he, in a moment of, I guess, just couldn't think of a better word, came up with the name for his invention, and he named it after himself. He called it the Erno Rubik Magic Cube. <laughs> and by the beginning of 1980, these started to get sold in toy stores in the UK. By July of 1980, it was estimated that 70% of families and households in the UK owned one of these. Pretty much every stay-at-home parent had one of these, and were desperately trying to solve it in the free time when they're not doing nappies or putting the kids down or feeding them. They were twiddling this thing, trying to get it solved. Every stay-at-home parent, including my mother. Some of my earliest memories as a six-year-old is my mother desperately trying to solve the cube. She was in a competition with her best friend, and they were both frantically trying to beat the other person in solving the actual cube. I remember I would come home after school, and she'd be busy trying to sort the thing out, but the thing never kind of looked like it's looking in my hand right now. I'm an earnest to my mom, she didn't realize this, but me and my friends who lived on the street were also in a competition. We were in a competition to see whose mother could solve the cube <laughs> fastest. And so every day after school, we would meet on the street and we'd be like, how's your mother doing with the cube? And everybody would be like, oh, she's amazing. She's almost finished it. When inside, we knew that she was a complete mess and couldn't work it out at all. Well, about nine weeks after my mom had purchased the cube, I come home one day after school, and she's sitting on the kitchen table with a smile on her face. And as I walk into the room, she's like, ah, and she shows me the completed cube. We had never seen the completed cube ever. We'd only ever seen it on TV. We'd seen it in magazines, but never actually had held one or seen it with our eyes. I could not believe that my mom had solved the cube. She was the greatest mother in the universe. <laughs> and then my mom made a mistake. I asked her if I could borrow the cube so that I could show it off to my friends. I'm six years old. My mother must have had a lapse in concentration because she gave me the cube. And I had never felt more cool walking down my street holding the cube in my hand. All the kids ran up to me with eyes ablaze. Oh my gosh, your mother solved the cube. Your mother's awesome. Every kid except one. There's always one kid, isn't there? The one kid who's jealous and envious of your mother. This kid asked if he could hold the cube. I thought, that's a great idea, so I give him the cube. And he goes, he makes four moves and gives it back to me. Panic begins to rise up inside of me. It's taken my mother nine weeks to solve the cube. It took my friend nine seconds to ruin the cube. 
But I thought, well, he only just did like four moves. If I just reverse the four moves, we'll be fine. And so I tried to reverse the four moves, and obviously I made it even worse than what it was. I then said to my friends, does anybody know how to solve the cube? And of course, all my friends were like, yes, I know. So I gave the cube to all my friends, and they all tried to solve it. And after just a few moments, let me show you actually what it ended up looking like. It ended up looking like this one right here. And I cannot tell you the amount of pain and panic that was going through my body. My mom has worked for nine weeks to make this thing look like that and had looked like that. But now it looked all messed up just like this one. And I was in absolute fear. I thought, if I go home right now and show her this, she's going to be so angry. She's going to blow up. She's going to, I don't know what she's going to do. She's probably going to send me to my bedroom until I'm 21. That's what was going through my mind. So I, 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 I said to my friends, what's the way we can fix this? How can we fix this? And, and we, I thought, well, maybe I can give it to one of their mothers, and one of their mothers can fix it. And we realized that none of the mothers had fixed it. Uh, then I thought, OK, I just need to find a kettle. And if I get the kettle and boil water, and I can steam off all the individual stickers <laughs> of this cube, and then I can stick them back on in the right way and trick my mother, and maybe that's the way to do it. And then I realized that they're molded plastic squares on here, and they're not stickers at all, and you can't kind of do that. And so I realized that there was only one way, only one pathway that was in front of me. I had to go home and be honest about what I'd done. Because I realized that the only person who could fix it was the one who had actually done it before. I remember walking into the house and my heart's beating so fast. I mean, I'd screwed up. I had messed up. And I knew that she was going to be angry, and she had every right to be angry at me. And as I walked into the kitchen, I could see her sitting at the table, and I put the cube behind my back like this. And I was crying, six years old, just bawling my eyes out. And I walked into the kitchen, and my mom looked up at me, and I couldn't even look her in the eyes, and I just basically did this. I'm sure my mom was angry, but she looked at her son quivering before her, a complete wreck. And she says these words. She goes, it's okay, son. I've done it before. I can do it again. Elijah, as we saw last week, is trembling and absolutely shattered inside. He had thought that he was going to be bringing revival to Israel. And he'd had this amazing moment on the mountaintop where, where everything seemed to be amazing and perfect, where God came through and did great stuff, and the 850 prophets of Baal were defeated. But immediately after that, he hears of a death threat against his life from Ahab and Jezebel. And he's so overwhelmed and so conflicted, having thought that he had brought revival and now realized that there was no revival, no revival in the leadership. And if there was going to be no revival in the leadership, then there was going to be no revival in Israel. And suddenly all the feelings, the emotional exhaustion, the feeling of being a failure hits Elijah so much. And Elijah's life suddenly spins out of control. It spins out of control so much that he can't face life anymore. And so he goes into the desert, and he walks in the desert. 
And he, and he finds a, a solitary broom tree and he lies down next to it and he prays that God would take his life because he feels like he's screwed up and he feels like God is going to be angry at him and he feels like he can't face it and God deserves to punish him. And so he comes before God and he's like, just take my life. It's not worth living. I failed you. I failed Israel. Everything has gone wrong. And we saw last week that God shows up as, a, as an angel in the form of an angel and touches him to say, you're not alone. And then puts food and water in his body to strengthen him so that he can go on a, a journey of 40 days and 40 nights. So, and then God begins to say some words over him that begins to say something to the emotional state that he's actually in himself. And so he travels 40 days and 40 nights and he comes to this mountain, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And he goes up into the mountain and he finds a cave in the mountain. And he goes inside that cave and he literally collapses on the floor because he's so overwhelmed. He's so done. He's so worn out. He's so frustrated. And he needs rest. I want you to see what happens next. This is 1 Kings 19, starting in verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord God said to him, go out and and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. This is one of the most famous stories there is in the Old Testament. And I think sometimes when something is so famous, it can be easy for us to actually miss the the depth of what's actually happening here and the, the true meaning of what's taking place. What we need to understand when we approach this story is that there are things happening in Israel and in Elijah. In other words, there's stuff that's happening on the national level and on the personal level. On the national level, Israel literally is in tatters. It has been worshipping the gods of Baal and Esherah for many years to this point. And that idol worship has, has ruined their, their culture, has ruined their thinking. And, and they were in a dark, dark place. Literally, Israel was shattered. But not just that, Elijah himself was also shattered. There's something very personal going on here for Elijah. As I've just explained, he thought he was going to bring revival to Israel, but all he's felt, all he's thought he's seen is failure. He's seen the broken down of all of that stuff that's happened. He's seen the impact that the idol worship has had on his people. And now he feels like he's completely alone. And all he wants to actually do is die. And God brings him to a very important place in the midst of this overwhelming mental health challenge that Elijah is going through. God brings him to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, now this is very important to understand the point of this whole story. See, Mount Horeb is known by another name in the Old Testament. That's Mount Sinai. Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai, it's the same mountain. 
And so this is the place that Moses met God at. This is the place where Moses, who was running from his own mental health challenge, his own emotional exhaustion, having committed murder in Egypt, fled from there and tried to start a new life by covering up the brokenness that he had done in his past, God meets him in a burning bush at the foothills of Mount Sinai. And in this mountain and in God's presence, God shows up in the power of his presence. And he says, he says Moses, remove your sandals because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. And God begins to speak to Moses and says, I want to raise you up to be a mouthpiece to go back to Egypt. And my people have been in slavery there for 430 years. I want you to release them from slavery and bring them to this mountain. And when you come to this mountain, I will reveal my power to you and you will worship me. Now, I'm going to cut a long story short. You can show up for the Exodus series and hear it in all its detail over 25 weeks. But that's exactly what Moses does. He goes back to Egypt. He, through the leading and the miracles of God, is able to bring Israel back to the foot of Mount Sinai. And as they gather around the feet of Mount Sinai, God shows up and reveals his power to them. How does that happen? Well, he invites Moses to walk up into the mountain, whilst the whole of Israel stays at the foothills of the mountain. And as Moses goes up, God moves him into the cleft of a rock. And for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses is there, and God reveals his power to the Israelites in that moment. And that power is revealed through this incredible wind that comes and, and shakes the mountain. It's revealed in an earthquake, which, which literally shakes all of the rocks around the mountain so that Israel can see the power of God. It then comes in a pillar of fire on the top of Mount Sinai that burns all up and brings smoke. And God is then, uh, Moses is then called to go up into the smoke, into the fire, where he meets with God face to face. So Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, represents this incredible, dramatic encounter of the power of God. And Elijah has been cool to go there. So Elijah is thinking God is going to show up in this place in those dramatic and powerful ways. We've got to be really clear that we see the parallels here. You see, Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. It takes Elijah 40 days and 40 nights to walk to the mountain. Moses is hidden by God in a cleft of the rock. So Elijah is now in a cave in the rock. And then God shows up and does exactly for Elijah what he had done for Moses, except for one really, really, really important small detail that we need to notice. Let me read this to you again. There is a great and powerful wind that tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. This would have been a very interesting experience for Elijah, experiencing this in real time. It's easy when we read the story to kind of think of it like a Hollywood movie. Elijah's right there in the midst of this, and he knows what Mount Horeb is all about. He was schooled in the Torah. He understood what would have happened and what normally happens on the mountain. He knew what had happened to Moses. So, so when this big wind started to whip up when he's in the cave, he's like, well, God's going to show up now. And God doesn't. And then when the, when the mountain begins to shake, Elijah would have been like, okay, that's kind of weird. He didn't show up in the wind, but I guess he's going to show up now because the mountain's shaking and God didn't show up. And then Elijah's thinking, well, the last thing that happened for Moses was there was a fire and suddenly a fire starts. And he's like, ah, okay, this is it. God's going to show up now. And God doesn't show up. And, and the, the question that the text is wanting you to ask of it is a simple one. Why? 
Why does God do all the same things that he had done with Moses, with Elijah, but in particular and specifically does not reveal his presence in those things? Well, I I think the answer to that is both national and personal. On the national level, I think what God's doing here is showing Elijah what is actually happening in the communal consciousness of Israel itself. I think this is God saying, Elijah, you are 100% right. Israel is in ruins. You see, the wind and the earthquake and the fire are these dramatic moments, and they represent the kind of worship that was happening in Israel at this time. See, the worship of Baal and Esherah was a dramatic and loud kind of worship. There was lots of drumming. There was lots of noise. And if this was, let's just pretend that this is an altar to Baal, one of the ways in which you were worshiping Baal is you would run around the altar as fast as you can, and you would be whipping your yourself up into an emotional frenzy. You'd be shouting out, screaming out, running around, trying to worship Baal, and thinking that if you can get yourself into this ecstatic emotional state, then you will have a spiritual experience. And I think God shows up to Elijah, and he says, here's the wind, here's the earthquake, here's the fire, here's all this great noise, I'm not in it. What he's saying is, here's Israel, and all of their worship, and all of their noise, and all of their altars, and they think that some God is going to show up, but I'm not in it. In other words, Elijah, you're right. This is a complete waste of time, and Israel is indeed in shatters. And I I think this was important for Elijah, but I think it's important for us. I, I think it's particularly important for us in a church like the vine. We love worship here. And one of the things that I think makes the vine the vine is that incredible worship time we've just had before I started speaking. We love to gather in this room and gather online and gather in Yulong and worship God in the way that we do. And our worship here is noisy. It's loud. We have drums. We sing loud. It's awesome. But I think what God is saying is we have to be really careful in our journey with him that our worship of him doesn't become a worship of worship. That our worship of him doesn't become some worship of an experience or our worship of him doesn't become instead a worship of some culture or some traditions or something else that's other than him. Even if those things are good, if they're not him, then he is not in it. We can make a huge amount of noise in this room, but if our hearts aren't in the right place, God is not in it. And so God comes to Elijah and says, what you're perceiving about Israel is correct. I'm not in all of that dramatic stuff. But God's also speaking personally to Elijah. You see, I think the the wind and the earthquake and the fire was representative also metaphorically to Elijah of what was happening inside of him with his emotions. He, He was going through an absolute turmoil in his emotions. He was so frustrated and so angry and so depressed And it's almost like there was this kind of roaring wind of frustration in him that he didn't know how to express. There was this like shaking earthquake anger in him that was deep inside of him. There was a a raging fire, if you will, of of depression that he he couldn't quench. He couldn't put it out. And and I think God shows up and shows him all the stuff that's happening around him to try to connect to the reality of what's happening inside of him. 
He's like, this is what it's like for you. This is how you're feeling right now. There's all this turmoil. There's all this noise inside of you. There's all these competing emotions that are trying to tell you who you are. Remember last week when I was talking about how our emotions tell us who we are. All that stuff is happening. And God's like, I'm not there. And I think God God understood something about Elijah here that I think we all need to grasp. God understood that Elijah in this moment is fragile. That Elijah in this moment is overwhelmed. And if God showed up to Elijah like he had shown up to Moses, I think Elijah would have imploded. You see, Elijah didn't need some big drama in that moment. He had enough drama going on in himself. What he needed was God to come. And like my mom, draw alongside of him in the time when he thought he would get an angry word. When he thought he should be told off. And God comes and gives him grace. Look exactly what he does. God says this. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. God wasn't in any of that drama stuff, but God comes and does something unprecedented in Scripture to this point. He just comes in a gentle whisper. The Hebrew here for gentle whisper really means a still, small voice, or or it can be translated a quiet and gentle breath. And, and And I think this is so beautiful. God's like, I know exactly how you're feeling right now. And I'm going to come to you in the opposite of what you expect. I'm going to show you all the things that are happening inside of your heart. And I'm going to come with the one thing that you least expect that can turn all of that turmoil around in a moment. When you thought I was going to get angry at you and shout at you and send you to your bedroom for 21 years, I show up and say, it's okay. I'm here. We can do this. It's interesting here, and I think this is really important. We never, ever know or hear the words that God spoke over Elijah. Notice that? I think if we did know the words that God had spoken over Elijah in this moment that set Elijah on his path to healing, we would have turned those words into a formula that we pray for each other every time we're a bit stressed. I think God is very wise Because God understands that every single person's story and situation is unique. Very rarely is there a one formula that works for all. And so we never find out what exactly it is that God says to Elijah here. What we see is the response. Elijah is drawn out of his cave. And he comes to the entrance and he covers his face like Moses did. Because he knows that God is about to pass by. You see, where, where Moses needed a demonstration of the power of God... God understood that Elijah needed a demonstration of his intimacy. And for every single one of you here, if you've ever dealt with some sort of mental health challenge like I have and like I've shared with you over the last couple of weeks with anxiety, so often the last thing I need is somebody else's loud voice at me telling me all the things that I should do in order to get better. And actually what I really need It's for them to just sit with me. For them to maybe shut up a bit and just be present. And Elijah discovers a God in this moment who is present with him.
like my mum when I was trembling with the messed up cube. And she says, it's okay, son. I've done it before. I can do it again. Words that I least expected, but words that healed and began to transform me. Words that were so powerful to me that I remember them verbatim 42 years later. Words that were so powerful that I've actually tried to hold that in my heart as I've raised my own daughter, Mia. And in those moments where Mia's maybe screwed up and messed up and done stuff, and I feel super angry and I want to do all the things that I want to do, I often will hear those words, It's okay, son. I did it before. I can do it again. Ah, okay. Let me move in an opposite spirit to the ones that the emotions inside of me are telling me. Are you with me, church? What's really interesting here, too, is that the idea of a whisper is something that I think we don't think too much about. A whisper is literally defined like this. A whisper is spoken words without the use of a voice, just breath. Spoken words without the use of a voice, just breath. Spoken words without the use of a voice, just breath. And breath in Hebrew scripture is the word ruach. It's also the word that's used for spirit. And so when God shows up to Elijah and holds back his voice and instead just brings his breath, his spirit, what he's communicating to Elijah in this moment is, I'm here and it's my spirit, it's my breath that can begin to minister to you. That you don't need all this great big noise around you. It's actually my breath that can come and bring life to you in this moment. I think this is so important because power is seldom the thing that we need when we're at the end of ourselves. Actually, when we're like that, what we really need is relationships. We need the gentle whispers of others to help us to be reminded of our value and worth. And I know countless times in my own journey with anxiety, when friends have reached out just to be in relationship with me, not to try to solve all my problems, but just come and be proximate with me. It's been like a, a gentle whisper nurturing to my soul. And I, and I want you to know that this is how God will work with you. When we started this service and I said, like, he wants to meet you just where you are at. This is God. You know, whisper is an amazing thing. When you're shouting at people, they can be a long way away from you and hear you. You may not have heard what I said there. I said, when you whisper, you have to be close. So God shows up in a gentle whisper, which means that he wasn't far. He was close. And sometimes the loudness distracts, but the quietness invites. It welcomes us. See, God draws near to Elijah and intentionally holds back his commanding voice and instead communicates to him in the gentleness of his spirit, his breath. And that's exactly what he will do for you. And if, if you're here today feeling overwhelmed emotionally, if you're here today stressed, if you're here today feeling like the world is just too much for you, I want you to be welcomed into the reality of a gentle whisper. Gentle whispers don't judge. Gentle whispers invite. And we know for Elijah, the invitation was for him to come out of his cave and stand in a place where he was exposed and vulnerable, but open before God to work in his life. 
And, and, and I think God's doing something else here in Elijah as well. I think this bit is really key. I think one of the critical things that God's doing in Elijah here, he's actually helping Elijah to understand not just what he wants to do for Elijah, but how he wants now Elijah to minister to others. In, in other words, the gentle whisper approach is not just so that Elijah, tattered as he was, could find strength in himself, but so that Elijah could then go and be a gentle whisper to others. That Elijah would be then equipped, having gone through that journey himself, to be able to be the offering to others in the same way. And I, and I think we get this so often wrong as Christians. So, so often when we're walking with people, maybe in our families or our friend group or in colleagues or even here at the Vine who are struggling with anxiety or struggling with fear or struggling with depression, I think so often it's, it's easy to get impatient with them. It's easy to get a little bit frustrated with them. And one thing I've come to notice is that God is so much more calmer when dealing with us than we are when dealing with others. God is so much calmer when he comes to deal with us than we are when we deal with each other. And we get frustrated and impatient and, and oh my goodness, my friend, man, every time I get around them, they're just so depressed. They're just so negative all the time. I don't want to be around that anymore. Or we want to go up to them and we go, look, just snap out of it. Have you tried smiling a bit more? Have you just smiled some more? Maybe then you'd feel better. Have you read your Bible lately? If you just read your Bible, that'll be the answer for all your problems. Have you gone to church? When was the last time you went to church? Are you with me? We make an awful lot of noise out of our own insecurity of not knowing how to walk with people, out of our own frustrations ourselves in the situation we're in, and we end up shouting a lot at people, and we wonder why they never come out of their caves. Come on, church. See, we, as Christ's ambassadors, are God's gentle whisper to the brokenness of this world. And if we just stopped shouting, perhaps more people like Elijah would come out of their caves. If we could learn what it is to be God's gentle whisper to those that are struggling with mental health challenges around us, if we could have the courage to recognize that sometimes the thing they might need the most is not the roaring wind of our positivity, it's not the earth-shattering earthquake of our encouragement. Perhaps it's not even the raging fire of our advice and wisdom. Perhaps what they need is just the physical proximity of sitting with them and them knowing that even if we never open our mouths, we love them. If you've ever struggled with mental health like I have, you'll know that you'll often feel like this. You often feel totally conflicted and messed up inside and your emotions are all over the place and you wonder, how do I fix this? And the, the problem with it is, is that you know how you should look or you have this perception of, of what you think is normal or what you think is right. And because and you feel like this and you think that you should feel like this, it, it clashes with each other, which makes you feel even more messed up than ever before. And every time you go into church, you think everybody else is looking like this when you're like this, when the reality is most people are looking like this and wanting to still be like that as well. Are you with me? And this, this thing of feeling like this gets worse and worse for us, and we begin to self-condemn ourselves. We begin to look down even on ourselves because we're not kind of what we want to be. And we've tried everything to try to fix ourselves. We've tried to work really hard. We've tried to get our friends to fix us. we tried to steam off every square and stick it right. 
But maybe we have to realize that just like me that day, when I realized that the only one who could fix this and make it more like this was the one who did this in the first place. So God shows up to Elijah in the cave of his depression and says to him in a gentle whisper, I'm the one who can do it. And my prayer for you today, whatever it is that you're facing, whatever mental health challenge you might be facing, or whatever mental health challenges might be around you in your spirit of influence, that the shouting would come down, that the earthquakes and the fires and the wind would still. And you would hear God say this, it's okay, my son, my daughter, my child. I've done it before. I can do it again. Would you pray with me? Let's pray.